Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. Do you like a nice cocktail? Are you having them continuously all day, every day? <laughs> no, like just because we can do something that we enjoy doesn't mean that there's any reason we would do it all the time. And at a certain point, I think what you're pointing to is that we're going to have to accept that it's really good for us to have a commute. Like we need that rumination time. We need transitions. It's not good for us to go from 30 minute meeting to 30 minute meeting. The things that we developed as a society kind of kept us functional. Like we need time to process our emotions. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was John Levy. He's the founder and host of Influencers. He's a behavioral scientist, consultant, and author specializing in connection, trust, and influence. Some of my favorite topics. And author of an interesting book titled, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. And in our conversation today from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, this is what we're talking about, connection, trust, and influence. We start with influence, what it is, what does it mean to have influence, and the role of relationships and community in creating influence. And John shares the details behind his influence equation. John and I also dive into the importance of connection and connectedness. Isolation and loneliness are an increasing fact of life, and it presents itself in the stress, burnout, and mental health issues that we see in sales. As John points out, Chances are high that the people you want to connect with are also in need of connection, too, and may not even realize it. We also dig into why sellers need to develop relationships in which everyone is better off, rather than trying to extract excuse me, whether rather than trying to extract as much value as possible from that relationship. We cover a lot of ground, but before we get to John, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. Are you kidding? I'm super excited. <laughs> we're glad to have you. So for people who maybe don't know who you are, tell us a bit about what you do and, and tell us about your influence dinners. Uh, for sure. So uh, my background is I'm a behavioral scientist, but I do research on the things that probably people find a little fun and silly. So... I, uh, I did, I, what was it, probably the largest study in history on dating. We looked at <laughs> 421 million potential matches between people. We used yeah. the data from Hinge. And uh, you know how people say opposites attract? Yeah. Total lie. Opposites <laughs> never, ever attract. Never attract. N never. Not I mean, even they, a little. Well, even, even at a superficial, you know, physical attraction level? So the, what we found is that down to your initials, you're more likely to date. So you are 11.3% more likely to date somebody who has the same initials as you. Really? But like literally anything that is similar is more appealing. Um, which NCAA conference your, uh, you, your school was a part of when you went to college. Right. right. Like across the board, there was one exception. And that is we thought introverts would date introverts and extroverts would date extroverts. But they don't because introverts never start conversations with other introverts <laughs> it's a very quiet room when they're together <laughs> exactly so you need at least one extrovert when you have two then you know right. it's gangbusters but right. that's the kind of stuff i did i did a study on like coupon use and found weird things there we uh, did a study on youtube predicting which ads will do well 
it turns out nobody's good at predicting these things. Right. Uh, but probably what I'm best known for, kind of like what you pointed to, is back in my late 20s, I got really curious what actually causes people to connect, right? So, mm -hmm. And uh, I figured if I could figure out how to connect with the most influential people in our culture, hopefully it'll have a positive impact on my life. And so I created a secret dining experience, but I gave it the most ridiculous twist you could imagine. People aren't allowed to talk about what they do or even mm -hmm. give their last name. And the guests have to cook dinner for me. So I'd invite 12 people at a time to my home and they are literally cooking dinner together and they have no idea who they're with. And then when we sit down to eat, we play a game to try to guess what everybody does. And that's when they discover they're sitting with a Nobel laureate, an eight-time Olympian, an Academy Award winner, a Grammy Award winner, celebrities, and occasional princesses, and so on. Well, so people want to know, is, yeah, how did you, as a, I mean, in your late 20s, mm -hmm. no track record in this, how did you oh, get... Oh, none. Yeah, how did you get these people to agree to come to your house mm -hmm. <laughs> under this set of rules? Um, what did, what caught their interest? So I think what's interesting about this is that I I engineered the experience based on how human behavior actually functions. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of really influential people. And also let me emphasize one other fact. I've done 227 of these dinners across um, 10 cities in three countries. And in that time, I've hosted over 2,000 people. The first guests weren't nearly as impressive as the later guests. Mm, right? Sure. So, but let's... You, you might have invited me to the first dinner, but then you've got real interesting people later on. Well, I think you're being a little complimentary to yourself, but... Maybe. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the big joke is I'm totally kidding around. You've, you've clearly developed an expertise and status in what you do. I, I wouldn't make it to my own dinner. If I wasn't the host, I wouldn't be there. That's yeah. very clear. So let's actually kind of just break down human behavior a little. Sure. Right? And let's kind of take into account one important thing. The more influential you are, the more status that you have, the more people are after something. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we look at how to connect with people, we have to be really respectful of their social pressures. Right. Connecting with your best friend's friend, pretty easy. You could just ask for an introduction. The social pressures are different. Right. Connecting with Oprah, social pressure is really high. She has layer upon layer of like people preventing you to get access. Right. And so there's kind of these two groups that are much easier to get a hold of. One are the community influencers, people who have an impact over a few hundred or a few thousand people. That's like a reverend, a martial arts master, or mm -hmm. an up-and-coming musician. The level up from there are industry leaders, people who have an impact on their industry through their thought leadership, their position, or their previous success. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are Oprah can't walk down the street without being interrupted. Chances are you have no idea what the CMOs of the Fortune 500 look like. Right. So, but these people are constantly being bothered for basically five things. It's they want everybody wants their social clout because mm -hmm. hanging out with them gives them status. They want their time, their expertise, their access, their money, right? Like there are all these demands. So I realized if I'm going to get past that, like let's call it defense shield that they have set up, I need to demonstrate that I'm first being generous and not trying to get something from them. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that just to be completely transparent, 95% of the attendees that come to my dinners have no business use case for me, right? Like knowing a Nobel laureate is cool, but right. I'm not exactly going to like, what, release a hot Grammy award-winning album with them. Like I'm not a musician. It's no. like, no. So I focused on doing something really generous. I invited them to an opportunity to do something extraordinary, right? Which brings me to my second point, which is people who've experienced a ton, people who are have achieved a lot in their life don't need another casino themed fundraiser to go to. They don't need another coffee with a stranger. Right? They, when you can afford to buy your own coffee shop, <laughs> you, you don't need free coffee. Yeah. yeah. 
If you're running Starbucks, you do not need somebody treating you to a cup of coffee. Right. So the question is then what would stand out? And the reason that this is important is there's a section of the brain called the SNVTA, the substantia nigra ventral tegmental area. And it's the major novelty center of the brain. And when you trigger it, it entices us to explore and understand. So I'm sure you've had this experience where somebody tells you about like some wild thing they just did. And you're like, that sounds amazing. And then you go and Google it and see if you can buy tickets or if you could participate mm-hmm. or you ask for an introduction, right? Because if something is novel enough, it sticks in our memory and it makes us literally go out of our way to want to engage with it. But as you say in the book, not too novel though. Oh yeah. So like <laughs> the novelty doesn't account for if uh, it's good or bad, right? Like right. if if somebody were like, oh, there are aliens right outside the door with laser guns. You're like, that one I can avoid. I'm curious, yeah. but I'm not going to engage. Right. So yes, Andy, you're absolutely right. Uh, so the problem for most people isn't going to be on the extreme end. It's going to be even doing something mildly novel. Right. Uh, so then, uh, so let's use the example of the dinner. At the dinner, I invited some people to something generous, right? They didn't have to pay for anything. And I give them an opportunity to do something novel, right? Yeah. It has this crazy format. And then there's this third kind of amusing characteristic that everybody thinks that influential people spend their time with other influential people. Like that's all they do. They just hang mm-hmm. out all day. They don't get any work right. done. They're in these exclusive clubs. Yes, constantly just doing right. nothing but hanging out with each other. And that's not true. Most influential people got their status from working crazy hours, mm-hmm. which means that they're spending most of their time with their staff and their admins. And so if you can curate an environment that has other influential people, they'll go far out of their way. So, I mean, I've never been there, but have you ever gone to like Davos? Where? Uh, Davos, the, the World no, Economic no. Forum. No, I've, I've not been invited for that, yes. Yeah, me neither, right? But it also costs <laughs> like a quarter million dollars to go, a right. little bit out of my price range. Yeah. But people are willing to pay that to stand in the snow, like in hopes of bumping into Bill Gates right. or Tim Cook or whatever it is, right? Because at the World Economic Forum, they are master curators. Same thing with TED. TED costs like $10,000 to attend. That's a lot of money. It's just, it is. Mm-hmm. But people are willing to pay it because Ted does such a great job curating the attendee list. And so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that, you know, I've gone a few times. The talks are nice, but I could just watch them online. I don't need sure. to spend a fortune. They're free. So it means that you're coming for the environment, the people who are there, the conversations that are taking place. And so at a base level, I understood that if I wanted to connect with extraordinary people, the angle to get their attention, to actually have show up on their radar would be to do something that's generous, that's novel, and that's well curated. Are there other characteristics for sure? But yes, but that's at the base level. Like if I just want to show up on their radar. Right. Now you had the fourth one in there though. You said awe. Yes. So here's one of these things. This is not a requirement, but it's It's a really interesting one. Mm -hmm. And that's because uh, arguably the most desired uh, human experience is awe. It's that moment that you see the world one way and then you see it in a completely new way a moment later. And these things happen very rarely. You could probably count it on your hands the number of times you've really experienced awe. Maybe when you held your child for the first time or... Uh, you realized how big the universe was, right? Right. It just captures your imagination. Now, what's interesting about this is that when people experience true moments of awe, they feel more generous and more connected. They will literally never forget you. And so I, I put it out there as kind of like this almost unachievable standard. It happens occasionally at my dinners where people realize that they were making guacamole with a Nobel laureate <laughs> or, you know, they were just washing dishes with Regina Spector or Isaiah Thomas or right. something like that. And it just kind of like, they don't know how to process that somebody that they've been like 
listening to their music their entire life or saw in concert. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly you're like doing something so mundane as washing dishes together. It, it like throws them for a loop and then suddenly they experience it. And what I like about triggering awe is that you just feel more generous and more connected when it happens. And it's a great basis to build a relationship from. So that's how I initially got on people's radar is I created something that was generous, novel, well curated, and occasionally triggered all. But that that's only part of the problem because mm-hmm. I need to be able to connect with people. I need for them then to trust me once we've connected. Right. And then in an ideal world, I'd want to have a sense of belonging between all of us right. because that kind of accentuates our ability to accomplish anything is the cohesiveness of a group. Right. So, and just so people know who are listening is, is, uh, these things we're talking about here today are all contained in John's new book, uh, called you're invited the art and science of cultivating influence. And so I went on the four elements you talked about in terms of capturing the attention of someone of influence, the generosity, mm. Because, yeah, this is a sales audience, right? These are yeah. high-performing salespeople. And you could just substitute, you know, the influencers in their case are could be a senior executive somewhere that would yeah. be an influencer on a purchase decision. So I just wanted to dive a little bit more into a couple points on some of those those four ways to get the attention of influencers. Generosity. Um, you wrote that what makes you generous is you give more of something than necessary or expected. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great, a great way of describing it. Because um, oftentimes you don't think about it in sales, people don't think in terms of generosity. I do. I'm actually using that term in a, in a book I'm writing now because, mm. well, this whole thing you you reference Adam Grant and, and the whole thing about givers and takers, and I love that book. Is that, and you, you know, relate the story about givers being, yeah, there are people that give freely and give too much, and then people that give, I call givers with an agenda, which is okay, right? Those that, that know where to draw the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's funny. I was, I just wonder if you had any other examples of sort of generosity uh, when it comes to, you know, you're talking to like a, a decision maker. So let's, let's actually break down something slightly different, mm-hmm. which is in sales, there's usually this impression of generosity, like I'm going to take you out for a corporate meal. Right. Or like, I'll give you a swag bag at a party. Yeah. We'll play golf. Yeah. Or, right. Now, most gifts aren't actually going to work because most people don't want more stuff and it, we don't want it to feel transactional. Right. We right. don't want it to feel like networking because the emotional association to networking is that we feel dirty. Yeah. We want to remember that human beings connect over interests, activities, and culture. So okay. the, the potential to connect over a game of golf is actually much greater, I would argue, than over, uh, what's it called? Over Dinner a, or something. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. yeah. And now here's what's, what I would say in terms of generous, is that if the golf game is just the two of you, that's totally fine. If you can really build a relationship and that's your personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's also at the scale, that's good for you because... There's really no relationship between introversion, extroversion, and sales success. Like, I think there's actually some research that suggests that the introverts are better at making more trusted relationships or something like that. Yeah. Yes, there is that. They're they're more likely to ask questions, yes, than pitch. Yeah. Um, So I, I think that when I say generous, I mean, if we're going to give somebody an experience, give an experience for the things that they actually care about. Right. And what we tend to do is instead of doing that, we tend to just try to buy the relationship. I'm, I'm not going to speak on I'm speaking in general in our society. Yeah, yeah no, but you're, you're right. Um, and that just won't work very well. There's a, an element that I talk about in terms of building trust um, called the Ikea effect. Mm-hmm. It, it turns out that people disproportionately care about their Ikea furniture because they had to assemble it. Right. And so 
anything we put effort into, we care about disproportionately. So if we're going to be generous about something, like I'm going to invite you to something, I'd want an activity that actually causes us to put in joint effort. So for example, if both of us are on the same team, it's probably even better if we're com- than if we're competing against each other on the golf course. Mm-hmm. Because then we're putting in joint effort into each other rather than right. against each other. Now, we can have healthy competition, and that's still better than just interviewing one another across a dinner table. But you could go on a hike. You could go do a painting class. You can do all these things that are going to be more novel or more interesting. One of the most interesting things I've recently come across, there's a group, uh, there's an investor in Silicon Valley who started a children's activity program. And the way it works is they'll invite all the kids of the most successful Silicon Valley investors Mm -hmm. and their parents. And then they hire professional soccer players to play with the kids. So now the parents are on the sidelines. They have no social obligations to their kids. So now they're bonding with each other. And now they have direct access over a novel activity that stands out as completely different. And now they've built up status within the community as being this central hub for deals. And this is what I love about it. Is, mm-hmm. is, is that kind of expensive? Yes, we can find a much less expensive version of that. But the person realized, here's a underserved group, which is the families, right? All these mm-hmm. people have familial obligations, so they're not going to make time for me. Right. Instead, I'm going to produce a novel, generous, well-curated experience and I'm going to make the activity actually for the family, not for the investor, so that the investor is free to talk to me. I thought it was so brilliant. Well, yeah, it sounds very brilliant. So the question, though, becomes, because I was, you know, think about this and reading your book, because I, I think you're right on on this, but it's, it's you know, if you're a, an account executive and you're trying to get in touch with you know, the CMO of a Fortune 500 company to sell them your software, let's say. Sure. Is... I know people listening to this, the first thing they're thinking is, well, and you'll take an extreme example, I, I can't invite the CMO to an art class you know, or to you know, go out and <laughs> paint pottery or something. Mm-hmm. But I think you would say that that's exactly the type of thing you should do. Oh, I would absolutely say that. And right. here's why. First of all, if you're the CMO of a Fortune 500 company, you got there because you were at least somewhat decent at relationships. Yep. Right. These roles are so competitive. If you didn't have respect and got status and all that. So the people who are at that level totally get how to play the game. Mm-hmm. And they know that relationships matter. And if you have a reputation of bringing together interesting people, it, you, you could literally be like, we're <laughs> sweeping the sidewalks of my block and they'll show up to that. Right. <laughs> like, like, listen, if you have the right curated room, just like Davos, right. People will go to the least appealing place in the world to do that. Right. And the perfect example is like, listen, go dig a well for charity water. Those people have been able to like pull the wealthiest people and most successful industry leaders to go to countries that are at risk, right, to go see their investments come to life. And so my first thing would be, yes, you can absolutely do that. Second there's actually probably no better time than now to do it. And the reason I say that is that we are so isolated Mm -hmm. and so bored of all of the digital events that are currently going on that if you can do something even mildly novel where they get to meet someone new in a friendly context, they would absolutely sign up for that. Because right now... Do you know, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but like this has been my experience with all the pitches I get. I get invited to some like 800 person WebEx to hear some speaker give a less good version of their TED talk that comes in less clear. And then I'm isolated on the tail end and nobody cares if I die and keel over. Right? Like, <laughs> basically, right. <laughs> like it's completely absurd. Right. And so they, what happened was when, when everything went digital because of COVID, then they said, okay, we're going to take our in-person programming and put it online. And that sucks because 
That's not what human beings actually want. If you really look at the science of what has people show up to an event, go interview people. They'll say, yes, it's to be entertained and enlightened, right? So they're either going to see like a soccer match or whatever, a concert, or enlightened, like I want to learn something. Right. But that doesn't carry the day. And the proof is that when you then push it just a little, well, you know, I like being around people, the energy and the environment. I could watch a basketball game at home or I could go courtside. Mm -hmm. The experience is completely different. In one, when I scream and shout, people hear me. I have an effect on the environment. I have influence. I don't mean influence like I can shift the economy. I mean influence right. around like what's going on around me. And I have the potential to connect with people or at least feel like I'm part of a group. Right? When you're in the stadium shouting and screaming at your team, you feel like you're part of something. And so when everything moved digital, we lost all of that. Right. And so if you're going to produce a digital event, the first thing is realize that you need to design it around the participants so that they feel the potential to connect yep. and the feeling of influence. So when we run events... Well, before you move on, so you said... Connected and feeling of influence. So how are you defining influence on that? That you case? matter. So that could be as simple as I'm answering a poll question or I can speak or something I do has an impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what I'm going to do is I'm since we seek out this experience of being able to impact our environment, I'm right. either going to do that or I'm going to start washing my dishes or answering emails. Right. And then you've lost me. Well, a question for you, because this, this comes up, and, and you're the perfect person, I think, to answer this, is there's sort of this counter cohort of people in our sort of sales environment who have said, look, let's, let's look at the messages of what's happened over the last 12 months. And, you know, really, I don't think that this connection with the potential buyer is really that important anymore. I mean, they're... They're really busy, and mm -hmm. you know they don't really want to talk to salespeople, and they'd rather much do this thing on you know this whole buying process all on their own, and and they just don't have the time. And my belief is, well, that's just complete BS, right? Is yes. that I think you addressed this even in the book is that is yeah, you know, sales is still a people business, most as a lot of businesses are. When done right, I would agree. When yeah, done right, sure. right? Yeah. Is is they want people want this connection. You, I think you make mm -hmm. the comment in the book is even though it may not be evident on the outside, is people are really wanting this connection. And and there's a sense, and I think you talk about some of this data. I know Scott Galloway wrote about it in one of his recent newsletters is that mm -hmm. you millennials, and not this is nothing about the generation itself, is just given how they've been socialized and grown up, is they are feeling disconnected to such a large extent through the technologies we use and and the lack of friends, I think you addressed specifically, and Galloway addressed it in his mm -hmm. newsletter, is we have this generation that's that's isolated, and people are sort of taking the I think the wrong lesson from this and saying, yeah, let's keep isolated, <laughs> as opposed to, yeah, these people really want connection, and yeah. if you, and if you can offer it in a generous sort of novel way, you have an opportunity to establish influence. I would agree wholeheartedly. And can I share a few kind of crazy facts that sure, I think will contextually? So when you look at the greatest predictors of human longevity, it's not, you know, drinking kombucha and eating kale. <laughs> it's, yeah. Could you tell my wife that, please? <laughs> <laughs> the, the biggest two by far after genetics, which we can't currently control, right. are number two is strong social ties. So having close friends, maybe family. And number one is social integration, feeling like you're part of a community. Now, this is super fascinating just on its own, but when you take into account the decline of friendships in America, it's terrifying. In 1985, the average American had just about three friends besides family. By 2004, 19 years later, we were down to just about two. This is before social media. It can't be blamed for this. At this point, we had, uh, it was mostly because people were moving away and resetting their right. social ties, right? So like you move to a new job and you have no friends. And so this means that we are desperate for people to connect with, <laughs> like we just are. Mm -hmm. 
And there's this impression that salespeople have, at least I think, that they're bothering people or nobody wants to talk to them. And it seems really easy to just put another Facebook ad and optimize it and all that kind of stuff. Right. But when you actually look at the science of decision-making, most of it happens on an other-than-conscious level. It's an emotional relationship to sure. something. And human beings are wired for human connection. It, we're not like certain species that can, like, I don't know, squid or whatever it is, that can just live on their own. We survive because of our ability to connect and work together. And when we're isolated, we feel lonely and loneliness feels uh, like the health impact is on par with smoking a pack a day of cigarettes. Right. So to speak specifically to this idea of do they want to talk to me or not, the answer is they absolutely do. But we need to understand what trust is made out of, mm -hmm. I would say, to understand what kind of relationship they actually want. Right. And so most researchers agree that trust is made out of three things. Competence, your ability to do something. Honesty, your truthfulness. And benevolence, you have people's best interests at heart. Now, mm -hmm. competence, like, let's say, Andy, we're having a conversation, and I misquote a study. You probably wouldn't go, John is incompetent, I can't trust him. You'd probably say, I had a long day, he got confused, and <laughs> in general, he's really solid, right? right? But if you found out that somebody lied to you, you'd probably begin to doubt the things that they said. Right. So a breach in honesty is a bigger deal than a breach in competence, right? But there's a kind of loophole, which is if the two of us are walking down the street and I say, hey, Andy, do you mind if we stop by my friend's house really quick? I want to pick up uh, uh, something I left there. And you say, yeah, sure, no problem. And we enter. And then 40 of your closest friends jump out and scream, surprise! It would be super weird if you turned to me and said, John, you just lied to me. I can't trust you anymore. <laughs> right? Like, that's super strange. I do that in the movies, by the way, but yes. Yeah. yeah. And the reason is that I did it for benevolent reasons. So mm -hmm. it turns out that we value benevolence above honesty and honesty above uh, competence. Now, what's interesting about this is two things. One is common practice in sales, lead with competence. The company has 99.9% mm -hmm. uptime and blah, 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 and great. And then you try to demonstrate that you're honest, but you never really think about the benevolent side. Now, when you think about it, what you actually want to do is lead with benevolence and then demonstrate honesty and competence because benevolence right. is the part we value the most. And if you look at the most trusted jobs in, the, in our society, the most trusted are nurses and doctors, right? People who have fundamentally benevolent jobs, right? Nobody becomes a doctor because, for the most part, to make tons of money these days, you don't. You do it because you care about people. Mm -hmm. and, and at the very bottom are car salesmen. Because <laughs> in American society, we view them as completely non-benevolent and dishonest. But if we're honest about things, I do want to be sold. I want to know that I'm getting the best of whatever it is that's an option. But that means that I need to feel like it's done through benevolence. We don't want to be sold when we feel like it's just serving the salesperson. Yeah, and that's, I, I always look at trust from a sales perspective as four things that mm -hmm. really serve your things parsed a little differently, which is, uh, and I have a little acronym just to help me remember it. Ooh, um, <laughs> teach, please. I want to learn this. And so it's, are your motivations transparent? Mm -hmm. This is part of benevolence, right? Are you transparent about what, why you're there, why you're trying to help somebody? Integrity, though integrity is both honesty and congruence, meaning, you know, do your actions align with your words so people mm -hmm. can trust that. Competence and then execution, meaning can you live up to the commitments that you make? So acronym being mice, um, but <laughs> can you trust the mice? But it's, yeah, it's very similar to yours. So we don't have the benevolences, yeah. but I think the motivations sort of overlie with that. But, but it, yeah, it's, it's people want to trust before competence. Absolutely. 
And I think the motivations <laughs> feeling and the trauma in sales and the reasons I started the motivations part was that yeah, similar to a car salesman, but let's say even a business to business salesperson says, yeah, I'm really here to help you solve this problem. And then three weeks later, it's, yeah, you know, it's the last week of the month. Uh, yeah, if I give quota. you a 10% discount, will you, uh, will you sign today? And suddenly your motivations become very evident. They weren't what you talked about before. So I'm, I'm in full agreement. I think the interesting thing is then how do we do this? Or let me rephrase. The approach that I discuss in the book is really about producing a long-term opportunity for people to yep. continuously connect with you. And, and I think that that's part of where the benevolence mm -hmm. and, uh, really kicks in. Because currently, if I'm a salesperson, every time I reach out to somebody, they think I'm trying to sell them something. And then they kind of probably get tired at a certain point of getting my messages or start ignoring it. If what I'm doing instead is I'm reaching out to you because I'm, I do this community thing where you can meet a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Each time I reach out, it's an opportunity for something novel, generous, and well-curated. And then I'm always top of mind. So when mm -hmm. the time comes that you do need my product, because chances are, even if I am an ideal potential customer, I might not need your product at the very moment you reach out. Right. And then how do we stay top of mind? So by doing it, taking a community approach over the long term, then a few things happen. One is I always have a reason to reach out mm -hmm. and be top of mind. Second right. is the more people that you meet through me, the more you become a part of my community. Right. And one, I stay top of mind more consistently. And two, you trust me more and more. By being a connector to some degree. Yes. And because yes. the people that you trust and have become friends with, you know through me and through the community as a whole. So it elevates my status. So this is what people are trying to do in some degree, mm -hmm. uh, most unsuccessfully, on LinkedIn these days. Oh, interesting. So I don't know what LinkedIn strategies people are using, but... Uh, I think that the issue is that LinkedIn has a really phenomenal value proposition, right? It's a great place to find information and people with specific titles. Um, and it might even be a good discovery process in the sense like, oh, I can't find somebody's email address, so I'll reach out through LinkedIn. And I've been able to get a hold of a few people that way. Um, but I'm not sure how people use the platform to do something novel. Right. I'm not sure how it yeah. can be used to create connections between people. I, I guess, you know, you could have a chat one on one. Maybe I don't even know. Does it have a video chat feature? It's going to come, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, at some point. Uh, but all of this is to say that. I think that if anything, LinkedIn kind of functions more like an online dating app. You don't actually date on the app. <laughs> you discover on the app and then try well, to get it. I think that's what people are trying to figure out is. Yeah, I mean, how do I build this community? This, mm -hmm. this, and I, I'll call it a network in the sense that people like Keith Ferrasi sure. use it, which is very similar to what you talk about with community, which is not, uh, you know, these are people that will do something for me, but this is something that, you know, we're in this together, right? That we're going to sure. benefit each other at some point, potentially over the course of our lives. Um, yeah, people are trying to. It's, it's, Hard to know whether it's happening yet or not, but it certainly seems like a vehicle. But I think mm -hmm. your point is interesting. What can you do that's novel there? And, I, you know, there, there are some people doing some novel content, right? Uh, some people are releasing video podcasts on the platform that I've seen and things like that. Yeah, but there's it's, LinkedIn Live, but... Yeah, uh, but the, the fact is that I'm, I'm very strong believer in let's... Let's get people to either connect in person or in intimate right. groups, right? Right. Uh, on digital platforms. Not the, the benefit of technology-based events isn't being able to reach 10,000 people, at, at least in my mind. If mm -hmm. I'm a salesperson, I want to reach lots of people in small groups. Yeah. So that, I agree. that way they, they feel like they're 
they have an intimate experience, they can connect with each other, they can associate those relationships to me. And uh, what I often do is I give them activities or games to play in small groups. So they mm -hmm. end up bonding. It's that Ikea okay. effect. So we've invented yeah. like 20 games for people to play in small groups. And they've been wildly successful because suddenly you're doing something novel, fun. And right now with everybody being so stressed, if you can incorporate a little bit of play, oh my God, it goes so far. Well, question for you is, is based on what your experience with all the dinners you've held and the mm -hmm. events that you do, do you see people anxious to get back together in person as we start coming out of the pandemic? Because there's certainly a lot of angst in the sales world mm -hmm. in general about, oh, it's never going back to the way it was before, which quite often, <laughs> the way people thought it was before really wasn't the way it was before for the most part. Yeah. But um, <laughs> is is my, my, my belief is that people are going to be dying to get back together. I, I think that we're going to see a bifurcation. Um, people who are, have friends tend to be able to make a lot more friends. People who are isolated and lonely often believe that they're deserving of their isolation and loneliness. So uh, I'm concerned that if people don't go back to the office, then we're going to have a whole subsection of society that limits their social contact and becomes more isolated and more lonely. So I, I'll say this. I think there's going to be a month of awkwardness, maybe six months of awkwardness, where people have to like readjust and figure out socially acceptable behaviors again. Right. Putting on pants, for example. Um, but don't, don't ask me to stand up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or we'll have to figure out like, OK, what's appropriate wardrobe now that we've been hanging out in like gym clothing for a year. But in general, like I don't recall, you know, in all the articles about the last pandemic post, uh, what's it, 19, whatever. The Spanish flu. Yeah, yeah. It's not like people stopped going to work. <laughs> like, it's not like society returned to normal. Right? No, they went crazy afterwards. Yeah. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of, you know, partying taking place. Nightclubs will be a thing again. Roaring outdoor 20s. night. Yeah. Roaring 20s, just 100 years later. Why? Well, I have this thing that I, and this, this sort of one of the things I say oftentimes about technology and so on, because uh, again, the whole, slew of people think, look, once we've gotten used to doing things this way, you and I were, you know, speaking through a digital medium. Yeah, I don't want to do it face to face. It's like, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think people I will find it hard. And, yeah. and, and I think the one thing that people have to understand is that just because you can do something this way mm -hmm. doesn't mean you should. I think the perfect example is, uh, do, you, do you like a nice cocktail? And yeah, yeah, old-fashioned. Perfect. Are you having them continuously all day, every day? <laughs> no, like just because we can no. do something that we enjoy doesn't mean that there's any reason we would do it all the time. Right. And, it's, and at a certain point, we're, I think what you're pointing to is that we're going to have to accept that it's really good for us to have a commute. Right. Like we need that rumination time that like we need transitions. It's not good yes. for us to go from 30 minute meeting to 30 minute meeting. Like the things that we developed as a society kind of kept us functional. Like we need time to process our emotions. Mm -hmm. And just because I can doesn't mean I will or I should. And so it's uh, I think that there'll probably be a greater number of digital conference calls. I think what we'll probably sure. see is. Maybe the people at Deloitte don't come into the office at GM where they're consulting or something like that. And maybe they spend more time remote or whatever. Mm -hmm. it is. But I don't think that it means that people will be left isolated alone, like with nothing but a video well, connection tied to their eyes. Right. And my point is your customers are going to want you back. You know, if you were out traveling to see customers, it may be different, may not be as frequent. Maybe you're overdoing it. I would say in most cases, you're probably overdoing it to begin with. Mm -hmm. But there is everybody that wants to fool themselves into thinking that you, yes, I can get business done on Zoom. That's fine. It's not the same, though. It really it's never going to be yeah. the same. And 
you know, if I have the opportunity, you know, if I was competing with you on a deal and and you were content just to try to do it doing Zoom, and I would say, well, you know, I'll make the effort. I'll go see the the buyer, and mm-hmm. everybody feels safe, right? We're all vaccinated, so on. So all those anxieties out of the way. Yeah, I'd give myself a much better chance of of being able to build the relationship and the connection with the person in person than that would lead to a positive outcome than I could remotely. Not that it can't be yeah. done remotely and virtually, because lots of people have done it. But it's just it it's harder it's to build better. trust. Yeah. It's the the fact is that the signals that promote trust um, are much harder to develop over digital platforms. There are ways to do it, right? But trust is built through kind of micro actions like, oh, asking about your son's birthday or passing you a pen when you need one. And these build mm-hmm. up over time. And if you're in two different locations, it's just not as natural. There's something called the Allen curve. And <laughs> yeah, you write you, about that in the book. Yeah. yeah, it's this kind of like funny thing. Communication grows exponentially the closer two people's desks are. So if our desks are right next to each other, we talk a ton and that's, or we'll text a ton or whatever platform of communication that's used. Whereas the moment that our desks hit about like 50 meters, we might as well be on different planets. And this is really important in the sense that when you're out of sight, you're out of mind. And if you want to have a close relationship with people, proximity is really important. It's just the nature of human behavior. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Um, well, we touched on it. I think people sort of have a false vision of, of the way business sort of takes place, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, I've read studies saying that, oh, we're talking about the percent of sales activities that were in person prior to the pandemic, which were wildly inflated. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, people weren't spending 75% of their time sales interactions in person with someone. No, they were using the phone. They were using Zoom before. They yeah, were we've emailing. Been doing, we've been doing emailing. We've been doing this virtual yeah. selling for 100 plus years, right? As long as there's been a telephone, we've been virtual selling. Yeah. And there's a reason you go visit someone, even though you can talk to them on the phone, because it's better. To yeah, your point. Fundamentally works. And, and you yeah, know, well, growing body of science, including an article was published at the start of the pandemic before we spent 12 months Zooming each other, saying that research has been done, I think is made at Rochester or somewhere, that mm-hmm. you could actually communicate much more effectively. You can hear and listen more effectively on a phone than on a Zoom call. You can catch mm-hmm. differences in tone and inflection, listening, just paying attention to listen to someone than you can hear. Now, some of it may have been, you know, just slight processing delays and so on that you get, you know, you can't mirror sort of mask the facial expressions and so on. But yeah, it's like people, I, I just like, if you want to connect, yes, you connect this way. I've built lots of connections over the last year, but I know they'd be appreciably richer if I could spend time with the person. Yeah, I agree. I think it it's, um, I'm I'm curious how I'm going to use Zoom in the future, right? In the sense mm. that as I've built this community mostly in person and then we shifted online, I've had much larger events. And these digital events are you know, 150, sometimes 200 people. And I don't get to spend any time with anybody because I'm managing it all. But they all get to connect and we do breakout rooms and games and activities right. and everybody feels super close. And... I can also easily admit that almost all of, not all of my pre-sales, but like a very large portion of my pre-sales in my book, I mean, 15,000 plus copies, probably came from people who came to the dinner and mm-hmm. and ordered, like large bulk orders and things like that. And what's interesting about this, for me at least, is that I'm not sure what the future holds, right? So I might do in-person events and then have somebody film it in real time Mm -hmm. and then create breakout rooms and activities for people to do and all that uh, so that the people who are in a different city can participate. Right. We might stick to just in person. We're definitely not going to stick to just online because I don't want to run it. It's not fun for me. Like, I'll be honest. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to participate, right. 
So like I enjoy running these events because I get to hang out with my friends or people yeah. I admire, whatever it is. So I, I'm curious what it, what we'll end up landing on. Uh, but there's, you know, I was spending a week, a month traveling New York, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, back to New York to run dinners in mm -hmm. all those places. Uh, and it was exhausting, but I loved those relationships. Yeah. And I can't imagine trying to create those kinds of relationships over Zoom. I don't, I mean, I would have to re-engineer something so extraordinary to be able to get close to it. And I don't think right. I'm really good at it. And I don't think I'm that good. Well, I think uh, I have high hopes that <laughs> you'll be back in person on that stuff. So, Oh, yeah. I, the, the demand that I've been getting for people asking me to do stuff has been unbelievable. Yeah. Literally. Right. Like, like I could literally invite people to stand on a street corner with me uh, to, you know, do whatever, and they'll show up. And Well, invite me next time I'm in New York. I'll come hang out on the street corner with you. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> Absolutely sold. Andy, you are more than welcome to, and I'd be more than happy to buy whatever you're selling. All right. Please well, know. <laughs> All right, John, for people that uh, want to learn more about your book, which is just going to be coming out here shortly, um, Amazon, I presume? Oh, yeah, everywhere. So it's uh, out with HarperCollins, May 11th, 2021, uh, in case you're listening to this a few months later. Uh, and it's sold Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, like literally any place that you can find books. There's an audio version and there's the only thing we're missing is like a comic book version. So <laughs> okay. if, if you're an animator and want to <laughs> go for it, uh, the, uh, and then if you want to get a hold of me or on social or join a clubhouse room or something, you can find me, um, at John Levy TLB. That's J O N L E V Y. T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy across Instagram, Facebook, all of the uh, Twitter. Excellent. Yeah. All right, John. That's been, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Indeed, this has been awesome. Thank you for having me. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show, and I want to thank my guest John Levy for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.